welcome to The Joy Report, a podcast dedicated to sharing stories about climate solutions and environmental justice grounded in intersectionality and optimism. Tune in to hear updates on all things climate, social, and environmental justice, explained in a succinct and accessible way by me, Arielle King, an environmental justice advocate and attorney passionate about environmental education. In this episode, we'll be talking all about cannabis, specifically the ways environmental justice and liberation can be advanced through cannabis decriminalization, legalization, and intentional investments. For thousands of years, cannabis has been valued for its medicinal benefits and healing properties. The god of the North Star, Tong Huang Tai Yi, gifted Shenlong with a book in which was recorded all the medical procedures that uh, you can use to treat illnesses and sicknesses. In 2800 BC, Emperor Shang Nyang, regarded as the father of Chinese medicine, was the first to document medicinal use of cannabis. In mythological sense, we would attribute their discoveries and findings to singular characters. Uh, you know, we talk about Sui Ren as a singular character, we talk about Fu Xi as a singular character, and, and uh, like today, we talk about Shen Nong as a singular character. But uh, one uh, little detail in all this uh, telling of the stories, uh, they were Shen Nong Si, Fu Xi Si, um, Sui Ren Si, which in a way, uh, in certain sense, you could also translate it to mean the tribe of Shen Nong, the tribe of Fu Xi, the tribe of Sui Ren, the tribe of Yu Chao. Uh, so in a way, historically, in a more historical sense, you could say that all these discoveries that we have spoken about so far are actually the cumul cumulative uh, discoveries and contributions made by a people rather than a singular uh, character. Historically, cannabis has been used for countless purposes, from spiritual connection, healing, hemp milk, paper, skin products, flour, paint, and even solar panels. From the 1600s to the late 1800s, American cultivation of hemp was encouraged by the government for the production of rope, sails, and clothing. And for a period, hemp was allowed to be exchanged in lieu of formal currency in Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Maryland. By the late 19th century, marijuana was a popular ingredient in medicinal products that were sold all over the world. History and academics agree that cannabis has tremendous benefits for people and the planet. And some politicians agree, as more states are legalizing the recreational use of marijuana every year. Yet there is still a severe racial disparity in who is benefiting from the industry that can be traced to the early 20th century war on drugs. This is Harry J. Anslinger, Commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Oh, sorry. The Treasury Department intends to pursue a relentless warfare against the despicable, dope-peddling vulture who preys on the weakness of his fellow man. In 1930, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics was created to adopt more uniform narcotics enforcement laws. Led by Harry Anslinger, the department campaigned to the American public that marijuana was an extremely dangerous drug. Anslinger was a prohibitionist who believed that the only way progress could be achieved in the United States was through controlling the immoral impulses of the masses 
with strict laws, heavy policing, and scare tactics. Journalist Johan Hari explores some of the reasons Anslinger pushed for marijuana criminalization. I think the most influential person no one's ever heard of has affected the lives of loads of people listening to your show. So Harry Anslinger is a government bureaucrat who takes over the Department of Prohibition just as alcohol prohibition is ending. So you've had this big war on alcohol. It's been a shit show. It's been a disaster. And he takes it over. And he wants to keep his government department going. And he invents the modern war on drugs. He's the first person to ever use the phrase war on drugs. And, and he really builds this war on drugs around two intense hatreds he has. And Billie Holiday is the personification of both. One was a, a, a really intense hatred of African-Americans. I mean, he was regarded as a crazy racist in the 1920s, which gives you a sense of how racist he was. He used the N-word so often in official memos, his own senator said he should have to resign. That's how hardcore he was, right? And he also had an intense hatred of people with addiction problems. He believed that when you smoke cannabis, time slows down, so a minute seems to last a thousand years. Throughout the 1940s and 50s, a film called Reefer Madness popularized propaganda that destroyed the image of cannabis. Here's a clip from the trailer. Smoking the soul-destroying reefer, they find a moment's pleasure, but at a terrible price. Debauchery, violence, murder, suicide. This fear-mongering led to the enactment of federal laws which set mandatory sentences for drug-related offenses, including marijuana. In 1970, President Nixon signed the Controlled Substances Act into law, which allowed for a significant amount of funds to be used on the war on drugs. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. I have asked the Congress to provide the legislative authority and the funds to fuel this kind of an offensive. But there was a clear ulterior motive to this war on drugs. During a 1994 interview in Harper Magazine, President Nixon's domestic policy chief, John Ehrlichman, explained that the Nixon re-election campaign had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. He is quoted saying, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Strict enforcement and the goal of targeting black and brown communities led to the enactment of the Anti-Drug Abuse Act in 1986, signed by President Reagan. This law instituted mandatory sentences for drug-related crimes, and a later amendment established a three-strikes-you're-out policy, which required life sentences for repeat drug offenders and allowed for the use of the death penalty for any person, quote, engaging in or working in furtherance of any continuing criminal enterprise. Currently, the United States has the highest incarceration rate in the world, and almost half of all offenders are serving time for drug-related offenses. But like most laws in the United States, anti-drug laws have not been enforced equally. 
Although Black Americans and Latinos comprise 29% of the U.S. population, we make up 57% of the prison population. According to the ACLU, Black people are three times more likely to be arrested or cited for cannabis possession compared to a white person in the United States. And this is despite similar cannabis use rates among both racial groups. And two-thirds of all people in state prisons for drug offenses are people of color. Although many states have legalized recreational marijuana use, we are still seeing steadily increasing racial disparities in cannabis arrests. Even with legalization in many states in the U.S., there has been a 10% increase from 12 years ago in the likelihood of black and brown people getting arrested for marijuana possession compared to their white counterparts. This is why legalization must be accompanied with intentional redress through racial and restorative justice. A just future for cannabis must make amends for the war on drugs. The legal cannabis industry is monopolized by white distributors. 81% of legal cannabis business is white-owned and operated in the United States. Barriers for entry into the cannabis industry are still extremely high, with some states forbidding individuals with felony charges from obtaining licenses. Because cannabis remains a federally controlled substance on par with heroin, banks insured by the federal government have been reluctant to make their services available to the growing marijuana industry. This creates even more significant barriers for those lacking the startup capital to break into the cannabis industry. Fortunately, we are now starting to see states pass laws that acknowledge how racist the war on drugs was and how it purposefully harmed communities of color. Cannabis justice includes remedying the wealth restricted and harm inflicted upon black and brown communities by the war on drugs. One state actively working toward a restorative justice approach for the cannabis industry is my home state of New York. That was the voice of Cassandra Frederick. She is the executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance, who was addressing a coalition of marijuana legalization advocates in the war room of the New York State Capitol building in Albany. In 2021, New York became the 15th state to legalize the recreational use of cannabis. With this decision, the state has positioned itself to become one of the largest markets of legal cannabis in the nation which makes it imperative to ensure that laws and policies are created with restorative justice in mind. New York is one of very few states where legalization is directly linked with economic and racial equity. Of the anticipated $350 million in yearly tax revenue, 
New York has committed to dedicating at least 40% to reinvestments in communities most harmed by the war on drugs. This revenue will be used for social programs, including adult education, mental health services, and substance abuse treatment, economic equity through job placement and skills and financial literacy trainings and the implementation of community banking, and the funding of legal services for barriers to work reentry following incarceration. Further, people convicted of marijuana-related offenses that are no longer criminalized will have their records automatically expunged. Making this process automatic ensures that cannabis reform is effectively reaching everyone impacted by criminalization, including those without the resources to navigate the legal system to submit an expungement petition. These policies and changes cannot be made without buy-in from communities impacted worst by the war on drugs and intentional funds-backed support to ensure their success as they enter into this new industry. In 2019, Damien Fagan joined the 2% of BIPOC owners of private agricultural land in the United States when he founded Gully Bean Farm. The name comes from a crop Damien's father still grows in his native country of Jamaica. Nestled in New York's Hudson Valley, this Black-owned farm is using the region's mineral-rich jet-black soil to grow hemp, a variation of the cannabis plant containing a lower percentage of THC than marijuana. Damien is committed to sharing cannabis cultivation knowledge so that more people, but especially black and brown people, can access opportunities within the multi-billion dollar cannabis industry. My name is Damien Fagan. I was a a hemp grower. I've been in cannabis now for about four or five years. I uh, got into cannabis after a career in agriculture and economics. Um, I was looking at cannabis primarily as a commodity opportunity for brown and black people to you know, achieve generational wealth. It's a once in a lifetime opportunity. And, you know, if you care about economic inclusion, if you care about workers, if you care about wages and economic inequality, then cannabis is an opportunity to redress a lot of those issues. Um, That's why I got into it. I grew hemp uh, two years ago uh, in the Hudson Valley. And now, um, as Alexis mentioned, I'm with the HOPE program in Sustainable South Bronx. We're building a job training program for dispensaries primarily. Uh, and uh, incubator for worker-owned cannabis businesses. Before starting Gully Bean Farm, Damien spent years in the Peace Corps in Guatemala and in Washington, D.C. at the State Department, where he focused on economic development. He later earned a Master's of Public Administration at Columbia School for International and Public Affairs, focused on learning how he might be able to support farmers improving their crop yields. After recognizing the value in growing cannabis for uses outside of medical marijuana, which at the time he graduated in 2017 was the only legal allowable use of the plant in New York, like textiles and plant alternatives, Damien headed to Colorado to learn more about growing. In a 2021 Vogue article, Damien shared about the steep and costly learning curve associated with breaking into the cannabis industry. The United States has spent the last 80 years with a federal ban on not only the use of cannabis, but also the studying and growing of the crop. In this article, Damien explains that the people with the knowledge make those now entering this industry think that what they're about to embark on is impossible. He notes that this information asymmetry leads to exploitation and talks about the overcharging and overbilling that he experienced when breaking in. 
After much trial and error, Damien has managed to build community with other BIPOC farmers in the area and sustain a successful cannabis farm while continually finding ways to give back to his community. He has recently partnered with Medgar Evers College in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, to develop a curriculum focused on the cannabis industry. And starting May 1st, he will join the Medgar Evers College Cannabis Education Task Force as an adjunct professor for a 15-week course on cannabis horticulture in an effort to make the cannabis industry as inclusive as possible. With the increase of legalization at the state and federal level, Damien intends to help the next generation of hemp and cannabis farmers get in on the ground floor of New York State's Green Rush. New York has recently announced a new plan to help people like Damien and his students get their foot into the cannabis industry. The state plans to grant marijuana retail licenses to people who have been affected by marijuana-related convictions. The governor has proposed spending $200 million on finding and renovating storefronts for retailers, and the state is expecting to grant 100 to 200 licenses through this initiative. Fortunately, Damien has also started working on the Cannabis Business Incubator in the Bronx, so entrepreneurs, or formerly incarcerated people who once grew cannabis in the basements of public housing and were arrested for it, can now access a facility rent equipment, and launch their own businesses. Here are some ways you can be a part of the positive and inclusive change we all hope to see in the cannabis industry. First, educate yourselves. Education is an essential part of any type of advocacy. Second, spread the word. Write letters to the editor of your local newspaper about the need for cannabis policy reform. Third, Support legal aid organizations that are working to fulfill legal needs for vulnerable prison inmate populations and formerly incarcerated people. Fourth, get involved. Work to get your city council to pass an ordinance making cannabis offenses the city's lowest law enforcement priority. And as cannabis activist Solange Burnett puts it, In addition to making purpose-driven purchases, lean into your values by supporting marginalized communities. We also need education and advocacy. Get involved to end prohibition and incarceration. Work with and amplify organizations already doing the work to ensure that a federally legalized industry includes those marginalized communities. Also, don't forget to get out and vote. Voting in state and local elections is an essential way to work toward meaningful change in your community. When eligible, we must vote for candidates we believe in. And regardless of our voting eligibility, we have to hold those in office accountable. Send letters to your representatives at the state, local, and federal level, because your voice matters. For example, Mary Sheffield, the president of the Detroit, Michigan City Council, heard from residents that they wanted the state's legalization of recreational marijuana to create generational wealth, create revenue for Detroiters, and to create the opportunity for residents to purchase and consume safe and regulated cannabis within the city limits. And so she sought to do just that. The Detroit City Council recently approved a new version of their adult use ordinance in collaboration with the city's Civil Rights Inclusion and Opportunity Department. This ordinance provides assistance with business plan writing, reduced application costs and fees, networking, and discounts on zoned city properties for Detroit legacy applicants in an effort to ensure that Black residents and other Detroiters disproportionately affected by the war on drugs are able to profit from the state's legalization. 
This ordinance goes into effect on the same day as this episode's release, 420. Earlier this year, the House passed legislation to decriminalize marijuana at the federal level through the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act. The Congressional Budget Office estimates that the act would reduce the federal deficit by nearly $3 billion over the next decade, and supporters of the bill are citing its benefits to advancing racial justice. In other climate and environmental justice news, three members of the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council, or WEJAC, recently announced that they have secured $14 million for a program called Engage, Enlighten, and Empower. This program intends to hold the Biden administration accountable for carrying out its Justice 40 initiative, a promise made in Executive Order 14008 that at least 40% of all climate investments go to environmentally overburdened and disenfranchised communities. The program, led by environmental justice movement leaders Peggy Shepard, Dr. Beverly Wright, and Dr. Robert Bullard, includes developing a screening tool to determine where Justice 40 funds are needed most, educating local organizations on the resources available, and informing state and local governments on how the money should be used. The city of Denver, Colorado donated 33 bison to three indigenous tribes and the Tall Blue Memorial Council to reintroduce wild bison and support conservation efforts on tribal lands. The bison are descendants of the last wild bison in Northern America. $316 billion of last year's infrastructure bill will now be used to retrofit over 400,000 low-income households across the U.S. for energy efficiency. This will be achieved by installing insulation, sealing leaks, upgrading appliances to more energy-efficient models, and replacing fossil fuel-powered heating systems with cleaner electric options. This decision will not only lower energy costs for thousands of families, but will create a serious reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Panama is the latest country to legally recognize the rights of nature, joining countries including Colombia, New Zealand, Chile, and Mexico. Starting in 2023, Panama's rivers, trees, and mountains will have similar legal rights to people, corporations, and government that can be defended in court. The new law also requires the country's parliament to promote the rights of nature through its foreign policies and mandates that future government policies respect the rights of Panama's ecosystems. And in the world of intersectional environmentalists, our new IE original short film was launched today at a screening event in Lower Manhattan. The film focuses on the intersectional history of hemp and cannabis and the barriers that hinder BIPOC communities from thriving in the cannabis industry. You can find it on our YouTube channel, Intersectional Environmentalist. This Friday, April 22nd is Earth Day, so we at IE encourage you all to get out in any part of nature you have access to and enjoy it. And as always, remember, fighting the climate crisis is a marathon, not a sprint. We need everyone to get involved in a way that feels right for them, now more than ever. Tune in next episode to learn more about some of the benefits to plant-based diets specifically how cultures are using plant-based food to reconnect to their cultural heritage. My name is Arielle King, and thank you for listening to The Joy Report.